The NBA is rolling at the moment, one of the rare sports that seems to have figured out how to operate during a COVID pandemic. But a sport predominantly made up of African Americans playing before a country starved for competitive programming doesn't signal the entire story. Not by a long shot. Today we get to chat with Hall of Famer James Worthy, a Lakers legend whose iconic goggles and smooth finger rolls peppered the 80s and 90s with basketball success. You can see him now breaking down the Lakers as an analyst, puffing on a cigar in the glow of purple and gold victory. Worthy and I chat over a multitude of subjects. With the popularity of ESPN's The Last Dance, I had to ask him not only about Michael Jordan in that era's competition, but the stark differences between players from that era and the culture in the NBA today. And Worthy gives his most honest opinion on racial tensions and his perspective on the direction of this country. But up first, we talk about the foul heard round the world. If the Lakers and Celtics rivalry wasn't heated enough, Worthy dives into the textbook clothesline delivered by Kevin McHale on Kurt Rambis. He talks about the aftermath and his greatest regret from that moment. This is In Fuego. story and the history uh, you know the Lakers had never beaten the Celtics in the finals I think I think the Celtics had beaten Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and Will Chamberlain and all those guys Happy Harrison all those guys like seven times so finally it was our time you know uh, we had a new commissioner Larry O'Brien had retired incomes Commissioner David Stern, and he totally understands what he has in Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. The NBA uh, had a really bad image problem back then. In comes a big television contract, CBS. So all of a sudden, the Lakers, who have this Showtime, unfamiliar style that no one wants to accept, versus Larry Bird, and the blue collar workers, you know, the guys that put the hard hats on, and they, and so uh, it all started in 1984 when we finally met them. First of all, we played the Celtics four times in preseason. That's how Commissioner Stern was trying to, you know, conjure up uh, this rivalry. And preseason is supposed to be like, you know, kind of laid back. Well, those are some of the most intense games that I played in. And it was my, you know, my second year in the league. I broke my leg in the middle of my, my rookie year. So this was it for me, getting introduced. So the four games in regular season, two, uh, four games preseason, two games regular season, and then we get to the finals. They're a really physical team. We're better than them. We, we, we come into the uh, into the finals you know with a, with a fast pace and and, and, and we pretty we're pretty sure that that we don't screw up that, that we, we might be able to win a championship in 1984. So we go to Boston, we win game one. We take away home court advantage. That was our main goal. Game two, we have the game one. 13 seconds left. Magic inbounds the ball to me. I throw a cross-court pass to Gerald Henderson. He intercepts it. 
lays it up, overtime, we lose in overtime, game two. We're still okay. So we come to L.A., and they're trying to figure out how they can offset us. And so what they do is they're very physical. You turn your back, boom, they'll hit you in the back of your neck, push you, you know. Uh, it just and, – and that wasn't our game. That was not our game. We just didn't play that way. And it kind of threw us off. So we're playing, I think it's game four, uh, I believe. We're on a fast break. And Kurt Rambis is the leader. He gets the ball, goes up for a layup. And when you see the footage, you're going to go crazy because he just clotheslines him like a wrestler would do coming off the top ropes, just right by the neck. No play on the ball, just right on the neck. Kirk goes down, and right away, there's a lot of commotion going on. I'm a young kid in the playoffs, so <laughs> Kirk's over there on the floor, and I'm kind of looking at Kevin McHale like, I can't believe you just did that. And about that time, my peripheral vision sees a body coming, and I don't know who it is. I, I'm, I'm in a crowd. I'm trying to protect myself. So I give a quick push, and it's Kurt Rambis that I push. <laughs> and, and I think that I I think I saved Kevin McHale from a good-ass kicking because Kurt was going to get him. And so I, I had to apologize for Kurt over the time. But that, I mean, nowadays, if you took somebody out of the air like that, you would – you would you would be out for two games and find about two hundred thousand dollars. Well, the only thing that happened on that play back then was a file. I was gonna say that's something you could do back then. You could employ that as a weapon, being like, let's just be physical with these guys. Let's get them out of their game. That's something yeah. that is completely been taken out of the sport now, right? I mean, so back then, you know, you you'd second year player, really the first year player. How was it, you know, six, seven years later with the Pistons? I mean, had you grown to accept that? No, sometimes you got to put people on their butt. You know, you got to like, um, right? That became part of you. Yeah. That become part of your arsenal too, correct? Yeah. I mean, by the time we had uh, played the Celtics in three finals, uh, we beat them two out of three. When I heard the name Bad Boys, I just laughed. <laughs> I was like, really? You, you, you're taking the name from a movie, I believe, and you're just going to make yourself bad boys. Well, they weren't any tougher than the Celtics. So it just never registered with me. I just kind of like, okay, if that's what you want to call yourselves, <laughs> I don't think you're that tough. I don't think you're that physical. I mean, I've already played against, you know, uh, the Celtics, I'll tell you what, Mark Eaton, Carl Malone, and Thurl Bailey and the Utah Jazz, they were pretty physical. So I just like, you know, what? How, how, how arrogant to call yourself bad boys. No championship yet. You got nothing under your belt. Uh, it, it, it worked against Jordan for a couple of years, so it didn't really phase me. I had some of my best games against the bad boys. I just kind of laughed it off. Like, like their thing was to try to intimidate you. And I was like, really? You're not doing a good job at it. <laughs> Worthy went up against some of the most legendary defenders who ever played the game. 
But his fiercest opponent, one who mixed deft skill, unparalleled instincts with, well, enigmatic tactics, was none other than Dennis Rodman. Rodman was my biggest competitor. He was there uh, mid-80s through all my games with the Pistons. And so uh, they, you know, they never tried to Jordan rules with us. The beginning of the game uh, with the Pistons, I had a three-headed monster. You know, first it was Rick Mahorn. Rick Mahorn uh, was wide-body. You know, you couldn't go around him. And he was really good at being physical. So I had to have one game for him. Next, I had John South. They called him the spider because he was a great shot blocker. So I had to have a different game for him. And then lastly, they brought in the toughest guy who played more minutes and played me the most was Dennis Rodman. Now, Dennis physically was the best defender I ever played against. He, he could match my foot speed. He was strong, a great offensive rebounder. But Dennis was crazy. You know, Dennis had a psychological edge. You know, he'd come in the game and grab your ass and hold it for a little <laughs> bit too long. And I'd be like, that's not a pat, man. That's a, that's a grab. And so he was, and then, and then you think about his, hanging out with Madonna and, and stuff like that. He hadn't quite started wearing wedding dresses yet, but he was, he was kind of, he's kind of, he's kind of, it's kind of crazy. So <laughs> you spend the first seven minutes uh, of, of the game trying to figure out, did he just pinch my ass or did he just give me a sportsman like pat on the butt? And the next thing you know, he's got 15 rebounds because you're like weirded out. So Rodman was not only a great player, he he had the psychological games he would play on you. And uh, you had to be really mentally tough to overcome that because physically he was just hard to deal with. And you really had to block out all the all the crazy stuff, too. The NBA in 2020 is fast paced, high scoring, and prone to a bevy of beautiful three-pointers raining down for 48 minutes. It's also a softer, gentler, more sophisticated version than the WWE lariat to the neck version Worthy played in. A lack of hand checking and an outside first mentality means the game is, well, it's softer, cozier. It's like a sweater right out of the dryer. It's comfy, but there's nothing dangerous about it. And the players nowadays, I mean, you would consider them soft compared to, to what you guys had to go through, right? You know, I I think, I, I can't say that the players are individually soft. The league has softened them up a little bit. You know, because when I first started playing, I, I started watching Oscar Robinson and back then Luau Sindor before Kareem and guys like that. And, and you could play good, hard defense. You know, you could... You could use your arm as long as you didn't extend it. If somebody came in that paint, you could check them. I mean, you could check them like you were blocking them in football. It was physical. And there was the time there was no layups, no layups at all. You weren't getting any free layups. Hard fouls were common. What was hard fouls back then are, are you know, uh, you dismissed for a couple games and a big fine. So, I contribute that to 
you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had four years under John Wood. Okay. Jamal Wilkes, four years under John Wood. Michael Jordan and I had three years under Dean Smith. So we got the science and the theory of the game. We got this. We got the drill work. You know, every day before practice, we were doing drills, 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 drills. And, you know, you played about 32, 40 games. Nowadays, so, so, so when you got into the league, you were fundamentally sound. You knew how to play. Now, kids don't get that. One year of college, they're not trying to learn nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, they want their tattoos. They want to look good, lift weights, get the earrings, and they want social media. And all of a sudden, they're number one draft picks. They don't get that. So when they get to the league, I think the league has had to soften it up a little bit. I remember they moved the three-point line in a little bit one time. Can't touch anybody anymore, hand-checking and all that stuff. It's part of the game. That's part of the game. So I'm not taking anything away from a guy like Harden who gets to waltz down the lane untouched. If you breathe on it, they call a foul. Uh, he, w- he, would have, he would have been a decent player back in my time, but he would have, he would have felt the pain. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so it's, it's different. I think the league has softened it up a little bit. A lot of threes. So you don't see that. You don't see that action down in the paint like you used to. It used to start inside out. Mm-hmm. You throw it in the Kareem, you have to double Therefore, someone's open. You throw it in the magic on a small guard, you got a double. Mm-hmm. You throw it down the worthy, you got a double. So you go in, you go out. You got Byron Scott shots. You got your perimeter shots. That's how Steve Kerr hit that big shot uh, when he was playing with Michael in Chicago. Because Michael knew when he went down there and collapsed the defense, somebody was going to be open. So it's just a different game now. It's a lot of ISOs. You know, a lot of whining for fouls and can't. You know, it's it's different. Well, it's also different. the the smack talk has to have evolved, right? I mean, because back well, now you can't even matumbo anybody. You you have to like because that's taunting. I mean, was, yeah, was, was, was we, the smack talk different back then? Yeah, yeah. He talked a lot of trash. He talked a lot of trash in the paper. I'm not I'm not saying that they're soft. I think Kobe could have played. LeBron could have played in the eighties. I think if they're forced to be, there are guys that are physically inclined. But I think the league has taken that away. The league has says, no, you can't hand check. No, you can't file hard. So they don't. And they have adapted to what is today's game, which is, you know, shooting threes. you got to be a center that shoot threes. I doubt that any three-point shooters, centers, could go down and guard Kareem. You know, we we would try to go at a three-point shooter every time. We would go to Kareem every time until he had three or four fouls on it. You know, so there, there's give and take. But I, I think there are players that could, could adapt to the physical play, but they've been forced into a softer game. Rockets' P.J. Tucker is a shoe guy. Well, that's an understatement. Halfway through the 2018-2019 season, he had already worn about 70 shoes. That's a value of about $100,000. 
For his time in the Orlando bubble, he brought with him 91 pairs of sneakers. The shoe game is different now. Sneakers are lighter, more comfortable, and easier to wear right out of the box. Back in Worthy's day, they were likely to leave bloody stumps where your feet once were. It's fascinating to me that the, these Laker legends, you had one jersey. Um, and everyone's like, go back to the old colors, go back to the old colors. I mean, it might have been faded colors from now, <laughs> now that I understand it. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, you'll, you'll be able to find some footage where there'll be two-tone. There'll be a lavender jersey with a purple pants. And so, yeah, man, once they issued uniforms at the beginning of the season, you know, you probably got two home uniforms and two away. Let's just be realistic. That's probably what they had in inventory. But they never traveled with it. If you lost your jersey or if someone stole your jersey on the road, they had like two extra jerseys that were usually double zero or some some crazy number. So you never gave your jersey. You, you can't find one shot of Magic Johnson pulling off his jersey or anybody pulling off their jersey and throwing it up. I don't even, I can't even recall Michael Jordan doing that. He may have later on, but he probably wouldn't, but guys just didn't do it. And the same thing with shoes. I mean, I had a shoe contract. Imagine everyone had a shoe contract, but I wore a pair of shoes like for almost three weeks or so, a month. That was practice and the game before I gave them up. So you wanted to break them in, get used to them. You didn't want to be wearing a new pair of shoes so every every game. Now they Now they switch them up every quarter, it seems like. Well, that's and they don't match. The colors don't match. You can have a gold uniform with pink shoes and orange shoes. It don't matter. It's crazy, <laughs> but it's cool. It's cool though. It's like it's that's that's what people like now. And they're comfy. Well, because in the last dance, they talk. Jordan's wearing his his Jordan ones, and he's like, by the end of the game, my my they were bloody stumps at the end of the game. So the old shoes, you had to break them in. They they would they would hurt your feet, right? I mean, it was just a different. Well, when they came when they came out of the box back then, they were rubber and polyurethane and you know so you had to like wear them a couple practices just to kind of get them broken in and once you got broken in you didn't want to change right away so you wore them man you wore them on the road and the games you know you didn't care if they were a little dirty as long as they were comfortable then you know <laughs> then you switch you switch every you know every <clears throat> every eight games or so you know you might have a new pair ready to go. But yeah, it wasn't a whole lot in the uniforms. You didn't have a lot of uniforms. You had purple on the road and gold at home. That was it. And when we were on the road, we didn't fly charter. We flew commercial. So we'd have to wait till the next morning to catch a flight. Meanwhile, we would give our uniforms to the local manager and he would wash them right there in, in, the, in the arena and send them back over to the hotel before we uh, before we took off the next morning. And that's why they, you know, that's why they were probably two-toned because you got some 14-year-old kid washing uniforms at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. He don't give a damn. He just throwing everything in there, bleach, and they would come back two-toned, color sometimes. <laughs> but, I mean, the, party, the partying was better, right? The forum club was kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, the party was crazy, man. It was uh, it was a different, it was the 80s, you know, it was different. 
All that after the break. Ah, the 80s, when the music was pop synth and the world smelled of hairspray. There was no internet, no social media, and no way anyone could take a compromising video of you when you were letting loose at the iconic forum club after the game. In a word, it was epic. There was no social media, thank God, (laughs) you know. Uh, So, yeah, the forum, like, I had a couple of buddies of mine that worked in Atlanta. They worked for airline, so I would get them tickets to the forum, to a game. So they would leave Atlanta in time enough to get to the game with the three-hour time difference. Right, right. So they would get to the game, and I knew where their seats were. So I would look, and I would like, where's my friend Doug? Where? And I would never see him. And I would think, damn, he didn't make it. Then I found out they had no interest in being down in the bowl in the game They watched the game in the forum club and they got great seats because after the game, that's where all the action was in the city of Los Angeles. You know, you wouldn't even go to the Playboy Mansion. You go to the forum club first. (laughs) Guys, guys, you guys are losing me. What what the fuck was the forum club? The best party in LA. (laughs) The forum club was a club inside the forum and it was a bar slash Dr. Bus had a little section in the back like where it was like it was, like it was like Doc, Dr. Bus had his own uh, Playboy. He had like a lot of women, and there were a lot of women that came to the Forum Club. I mean, for a Laker game, the Forum Club, anybody you wanted to see was in there. Uh, and so my friends never went to see the game; they just stayed in the Forum Club. And waited till till after after the game. There's a lot of action in there, a lot of celebrities. Forum club, you walk in, dog. That's it. Was it anybody could get in? You go in there, you might see some a couple pimps. You know, you might see you know a couple drug dealers. You might see anybody. There was no segregation. It was like you got in, you got in. So that's what I loved about the forum, man. But it was it was the, it was the place to be for about. 45 minutes to an hour after the game. And I never got to go before a game, but I, I would imagine it was hot, man. It was a hot spot. So That's after, all I'm saying. After game, you were just showering. Like, let me get over there. <laughs> Shower? Shower? Nah, you just rush up there, man. <laughs> nah. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you wanted to go up. You have a beer. You know, Dr. Buss was holding court. You know, in his corner, he'd love for you to come over and say hello. So, yeah, it was a place to go meet Lou Gossett, Walter Matthau. You know, you might run into anybody up there. Man. It, was, it was a cool spot. And then just tons and tons and tons of, of ladies. It was just crazy. Yeah, no yeah. social media. <laughs> it was awesome. Nobody yeah. tweeting like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Nobody taking photos or nothing. You know, I didn't have to worry about seeing yourself on Twitter <laughs> the next morning. It was cool, man. Did you imagine? It's insane, man, how, like, now privacy is, like, a whole pri- – privacy is a pandemic. <laughs> and nobody wants it. Nobody wants privacy. Everybody puts their shit out there, you know? Uh, here I am doing this TikTok, you know, here I am with this girl. 
Here's my sex tape. You know, check me out. <laughs> check they don't want privacy. They don't want privacy. They want, you know, they want exposure. Slow to speak and easy to move on. Seems like a generally useful motto. There's an inherent reflection about that sentiment, but that's not what motivated Worthy's grandfather from using it. It was about safety. For an African-American family, the mantra was a guide on how to wade safely through an American landscape that wasn't always kind, and very often looked upon Black America with xenophobic eyes. Diversity can be seen on nearly every field, pitch, and court in professional sports. A 2018 report found that over 80% of the NBA, over 70% of the NFL, and nearly half of Major League Baseball are people of color. For Worthy, a black man from North Carolina, basketball was an unbelievable opportunity. I grew up, I was born in 61, so I was integrated. I went to an all-black elementary school, okay, Howland Elementary. And then in third grade, they integrated schools, okay? Okay. So uh, my brothers, who were a little bit older than me, um, the first year, they took all the athletes, okay? Mm -hmm. They took the football players, mm -hmm. basketball players, baseball players. They took all the athletes first. It was like a two-year thing. These are my brothers. So that all-white school, the next year, went on to have some of their winningest percentages <laughs> in sports yeah. and put them on top of the world in sports. Second year, they took some more students. Not everybody. I went from second grade to third grade and I had to have my two older brothers walk me to school every morning because you never know hmm. when you were going to hear the n-word hmm. you know on the way to school uh, nigga where you going hmm. uh, you're on the wrong side of the tracks you know there were some schools that we would, we would go to that were you know up in the mountains uh, you know and some of those rednecks didn't mind letting you know how they felt. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, my my grandfather used to always say, because I think my grandfather was a little racist at times because I think he was born in 18-something. Mm -hmm. And he saw the world differently than I ever could imagine. You know, I think he saw his cousin, you know, like hanging from a tree and shit like that. But he always told us that we you can't reason with ignorance. And as long as nobody puts their hands on you, you're okay. You just got to be slow to speak and eager to move on. Because I was pretty shy, didn't have a, 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 a huge vocabulary, but I had this, this one thing, and that was this game. So when everybody was watching me, you know, on the way into the arena, they might say whatever they want to say. But I knew when I got on the court, it was my time to talk. So whatever you called me on the way in, I was saying it back to you, uh, you know, during that game. So I used basketball as a means to 
combat racism, if you will. My mother didn't believe in fighting and stuff like that. My older brother, you know, he joined the Black Panthers back in the 60s and kind of, he was a little bit more militant, but I was the youngest. My brothers were eight and nine years older than me, so I didn't get to see a lot of stuff that they did, but I do remember growing up having to deal with stupidity and, and ignorance. And I know some people like to think that we're in a kind of post-racial society, but it's, it's completely, like you said, you can be black and shot for being pulled over, basically. And we're not at that point, you know, you could be a LeBron James, you could be a James Worthy and get by. But, you know, if you yeah. don't have that, if you don't have that, you know, rapport about you, then it's a completely different world still. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad that we have to uh, educate our children, uh, African-Americans and Latinos have to educate our children on what to do when dealing with, with, with the cops. Mm. You know, uh, from my perspective, you know, it went from whatever Jim Crow was providing in the South to a, uh, a huge prison system, mm. you know, uh, street, uh, three strike laws. What is that all about? Uh, white powder versus crack, you know, uh, one person does, two people do the same crime, identical crime, one guy gets three years, the other guy gets 25, you know, it's a, it's everything that Martin Luther King and Gandhi was talking about is the inequality, you know, the inability to get a lawyer, you know, uh, that is where we, you know, we, we need to build up uh, some, some you know, some consistency, you know, even, even today people trying to get their, uh, their small business loans, you know, don't have a sophisticated lawyer. All of a sudden Ruth Chris and the Lakers are getting, you know, you know, so you have to understand how the system is set up. Sometimes it's set up for you to fail and, and it's hard to navigate through all that. I mean, I just got my census report. You know, we just need to learn how to fill out the census report so we can get better schools, better roads and stuff like that. But it's it's the mistrust, you know, that keeps you from being fully activated. So. If you were born in Los Angeles during the 80s and 90s, you were stamped the Dodgers and Lakers logo on your birth certificate. As for the NFL, the majority of Latinos found themselves born into Raider fervor. Thankfully, I was raised in the more sophisticated sensibilities of a Rams household. Regardless, the Latino influence on both Raider and Laker popularity is undeniable. I was also, uh, you know, I also lived in a building with uh, some Raiders back in the day. And so, you know, that's where I got my uh, my real introduction to Latinos in L.A. was through the Raider experience, you know, being at the Coliseum, you know, and, you know, then going down to Alavera uh, Street on Saturday morning to get some good breakfast, get that heritage. So, yes. And then I would befriended uh, quite a few employees at the Great Western Forum. So my first experience was the food, man. Um, you know, going around uh, the city, uh, you know, because growing up in the South, we just didn't get Mexican food. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have that 
that heritage. So, you know, getting burritos and tacos and, you know, going down to uh, uh, Exposito, uh, Exposition Boulevard down at USC and checking out some of the uh, some of the some of the local uh, Hispanic food and and and, you know, so uh, understanding just how big Cinco de Mayo really was and understanding the heritage, you know, I'd already, you know, knew about, you know, Cesar Chavez and things like that, a lot of history um, that I thought was somewhat compatible to my history. After our initial discussion earlier this summer, Worthy and I spoke again when the pain over the tragic death of George Floyd was still very much new. At the time, many of us were still processing the senseless death. Athletes like Drew Brees re-examined their own previous opinions on issues such as athletes taking a knee during the national anthem. Worthy and I spoke on June 4th about this and some other rather moving subjects. All that after the break. Um, I don't know where you want to start, but um, do you have any comment on, um, I guess, what Drew Brees had to say? Um, and as we go along, if you have no comment, just don't worry about it, saying, yeah, I don't want to touch that. What, what, what was his comment? His was specifically, um, I don't want to stick up for anyone that disrespects the flag. Basically, um, you know, taking what, what you know, Colin Kaepernick had done and, um, okay. you know. Well. The only thing I have to say that is sometimes people don't understand the, the country and the history in which they live in. They don't understand systemic racism. Uh, they've never uh, been, you know, brutalized by the police. I'm not saying that white has privilege, but I don't think he really understands that this has never been about the flag. This has never been about the fucking flag. This has been about uh, what we've experienced with the I Can't Breathe campaign and, uh, you know, the guy can't jog, you know, in his own neighborhood. It's not about the flag. So I think it's um, irresponsible to not know the subject at hand before you go making um, comments like that. I don't know where he gets the idea that it was ever about the flag. So uh, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get his his comment at all. I wish he would take time to uh, really research the the subject and know, you know, the history of this country and why things are the way they are. It has nothing to do with the flag. And then, um, kind of. You gave us a really good quote earlier about, you know, slow to speak and eager to move on is and I know that's something that's that's, you know, for safety reasons for for, you know, African-Americans and, and people of color is is now the time to kind of change that idea or is that still something I mean, um, I guess speak that to that a little bit. Well, I think people have to realize that African-Americans has been telling the truth all these years. You know, now that video is available, we see what's been happening for years and years and years since I've been born. So um, I think now is the time. I think it's more diverse. You know, white people understand it more, more so than someone like uh, Drew Brees. You know, either you want to understand it 
or you don't. So people who make reference to the flag don't really want to uh, understand. What do you see as the difference between 92, kind of the riots that were going on in, in 2020, not just the looting and the riots that were going, but also the, the ongoing daily peaceful protests that, yeah, yeah. that are still occurring? Yeah, I think uh, the looting and the riot, uh, you know, breaking of property, I'm 100 thousand percent against that that's not who we are as protesters but like i said i think we see more people getting educated you know after they see trayvon martin after they seen you know lloyd jogging uh i mean the gentleman jogging after they seen you know uh the young lady getting shot eight times in her own apartment after they've seen uh a dallas cop going in the wrong apartment killing somebody you know after we've seen a guy you know, trying to sell cigarettes, which may be illegal, but not worth his death. I think people are more aware and realizing that we have to live together here. And I think that's what, what's happening. Younger people are getting involved. You know, that's a big thing. And I guess, what would you what would you say to the president's response? You know, I gave up on uh, you know the president a long time ago. I know he has no interest in bringing the country together. And you're seeing, you know, former generals and people who used to be in his administration have all have confirmed that. Uh, he's not someone that wants to bring us together. He's a divider. So we have to recognize that. And we have to get out and push to vote. I know that's an old story. But we really have to organize uh, and get people involved in the election, local level and national level. So uh, the president, you know, gets a big middle finger for me because that's what he's giving uh, to America. He's trying to destroy America with division and racism. Uh, and he's making it clear uh, right in front of our faces. So we have to we have to we have to get out and vote. We have to organize uh, our young people have to organize. And uh, that's that's the key. And we have to recognize the history of this country. You know, um, you know, the native Indians, you know, this is their land, you know, that was taken from them. You know, the, 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 the trail of tears, you know, putting them on reservations. Then they then they then they invoke slavery to build the country. And then after, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, freed the slaves, in came Jim Crow. And, 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 you know, recently, you know, we got things like uh, the prison system, three-strike law, you know, things of that nature. We see it plain as day. Dylan Roof goes into a church and shoots up people, and they take him to Burger King. Any other person, you know, of color, they get thrown down and beat down before they even ask for ID. So we have to organize against this. It's been way too long. And now is the time. And I guess my next question is, George Floyd, what were your thoughts when you saw that video? And what are your thoughts and feelings uh, as you as you see daily peaceful protests un unfold? Yeah. When I saw the uh, the video of, uh, of uh, George Floyd, uh, I cried. Um, you know, my grandfather uh, was born in the late 1800s, 1900s. You should tell me stories about how he had seen lynchings before. And so when I saw that, it reminded me of, you know, uh, Rodney King. It reminded me of uh, the gentleman who was trying to sell cigarettes in Staten Island. And uh, just a, 
it reminds me of uh, all the all the false accusations of you know a football star in, in Georgia gets accused of rape and 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 he spends I don't know 14 years in prisons and then the girl says he didn't do it. I think about that. I think about Emmett Till, uh, whose mother had an open casket so they could see, and it has not stopped. This is nothing new. It's just that the only thing that's new is the the, 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 the video on our cameras. We're capturing what they've been doing. Um, I've been pulled over in my life, uh, early in my 20s, disrespectfully. And so it, it hurts uh, to see a lynching live with, with bystanders who understand what death is all about. Watch a young man breathe. And, you know, the, the ambulance ended up being his hearse. By the way, did, did, did Drew Brees have anything to say about those men who marched on the Michigan Capitol with guns? I don't know. I saw okay. that snippet, and yeah. I haven't seen okay. the full. So that's what I'm, what I'm just saying. But what he needs to realize that that would have been a bunch of black men. It would have been a fucking killout. It would have been different. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get that. So the peaceful protest, I'm all for. I hope that they uh, uh, promote uh, voting register to vote during that time. But the peaceful protests are, are awesome. They've worked historically, unfortunately. Uh, the president is trying to put the focus on law and order as if he's Bull Connor or George Wallace or somebody. But we're not losing sight of what's at hand there. And that's what I love about the protest now. And I would say my other question would be, is this different? Does it feel different? Is is this the time where, where change will actually happen, you think? Or- we're going to see. We're going to see. We have a trial coming up. Quicken has ever been arrested. That's happening quicker than ever. Uh, all four are convicted. That's never happened. So we'll see. It's hard to convict police, but I think we're on the right track. The video is going to be hard to explain. You know, it's going to be hard to explain. So uh, uh, it's yet to be seen what's going to happen, but I think this is different than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And do you have, do you have hope, I guess, that, that things get I better? Do. I have hope that they'll be convicted as charged. And I think uh, this will be the beginning of conversations that a lot of white people have been afraid to have, uh, but they know it's true. Beautiful. Anything, anything else you need, you give me a call, okay? Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your All day. All right, brother. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Fuego Podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we do just that, pulling back the curtain on a rather uplifting sports story you might not know about.